Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, January 20th, 2019. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So you may have heard this joke before. I've kind of adapted it a little bit, but the story goes that there was once an English woman, a Frenchman, and a Russian. And uh, each was given a single wish by one of those genies whose almost inevitable habit is to pop out of uh, 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 bottles and grant wishes. So the English woman says that a friend of hers has a cottage in the Cotswolds. Uh, she would like a similar cottage, but with the addition of two extra bedrooms, uh, another full bathroom, and, if it's not too much, a brook running in front of the cottage. The Frenchman, who was rather lonely, said his best friend has a beautiful blonde girlfriend, and he would like such a relationship himself, a redhead instead of a blonde, and one with longer legs than his friend's girlfriend, and a little bit more in the way of culture and chic. The Russian, when asked what he would like, tells of a neighbor who has a cow, and he says what's amazing about this cow is that it gives vast quantities of milk, the richest milk he's ever tasted, milk which yields the heaviest cream and the purest butter. I want that cow, says the Russian, dead. Ah, took a little turn there, didn't it? Yeah. Well, welcome to week two in our new series on the seven deadly sins. This week, we're spending time, you can probably guess where this is going, right, with the green-eyed monster known as Envy. You may be wondering if these classic sins are really worth the press that they're getting, because at first glance, they may not seem all that deadly, right? Pride, envy, sloth, greed, lust, gluttony, and wrath. I mean, come on. That's not the big sins, right? Where's the big sins like murder, alcoholism, drug dealing, human trafficking, abuse, uh, weapons proliferation, whatever it may be, right? Don't they seem a little bit more deadly? I mean, uh, this list of the seven deadly sins, it may be a little bit outdated, don't you think? Well, it may be helpful to know that the Christian church in general doesn't really classify those specific sins as deadly, meaning they, they don't automatically send one to eternal damnation, but they could be the first step in a series of events which leads one down a path of no return. So more accurately, they could be called cardinal or uh, capital sins, or we might even say, with today's lingo, gateway sins, right? You get started there, and it leads to other things. Uh, I doubt many would argue, however, with their pervasiveness. Retired United Methodist Bishop Will Williman, in his book, Sinning Like a Christian, isn't that a great title? Sinning Like a Christian, notes that the seven deadly sins are so common, so ordinary, so much a part of our human nature, that we may fail to see how terribly they warp our humanity. Nearly all seven look fairly harmless, especially if we're talking about it in the lives of adolescents. But to find those still active in the lives of those of us who are in our middle ages or even older, uh, then it becomes a bit more repulsive. So with that in mind, let's jump right into the subject of envy. Envy is the only one of the seven deadly sins that has a direct correlation to one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, Commandment number ten, to be exact, uh, you shall not covet, whether it be your neighbor's house, wife, servants, animals, or, says God, anything else that belongs to your neighbor. So envy is wanting something that someone else has but for yourself, or, like we heard in the opening joke, wanting others not to have what they already have. 
That also can be envy. Socrates called envy an ulcer of the soul. It's the only deadly sin that offers nothing but pain. There's no joy in the reward uh, when you're going through that. But like gluttons for punishment that we are, we often embrace envy wholeheartedly and we ask for seconds. Pope Gregory the Great described the envious man as so racked by another's happiness that he inflicts wounds on his own pining spirit. Thomas Aquinas called envy sadness at the happiness or glory of another. And Frederick Buechner, in his wonderful book, Wishful Thinking, a theological ABC, says, envy is the consuming desire to have everyone else as unsuccessful as you are. Isn't that great? (laughs) We are caught up in a culture that hates envy, yet incites it mercilessly. Many advertising campaigns are built squarely on the back of envy, whether it's the high quality of a product implying whatever it is you're currently using is vastly inferior to what you could get, or the scarcity of the product, so you have to rush out and get it right now while supplies last, right? Plus, our society's hunger for fame cultivates envy amongst even our youngest of citizens through professional athletes, uh, movie stars, TV personalities, the Proliferation of social media. Uh, Many of you at this service are probably aware of FOMO, F-O-M-O, the fear of missing out, meaning the uh, things and experiences that others have are things and experiences that you want, and somehow your life is less meaningful because you haven't done or purchased those things. Envy attempts to keep to itself. It's shy to reveal its true feelings. It seethes and stews in resentment because of the good fortunes of others. Envy's three favorite words are, (laughs) why not me? Author Jeff Cook, in his book, Seven, The Deadly Sins and the Beatitudes, comments that envy rejects the good life God has given me and obsesses over what God has given to something to someone else. He writes, it's not only a rejection of the good that God has given, but a desire to become someone I'm not, was never made to be, and will not enjoy becoming if my envy ever were to succeed. I'd love that. We often think what we want is going to make us better, but oftentimes it's not what God intends for us. Envy's view of the world is antagonistic. It's always me versus you, your good or my good, and there's never room for both. The 1984 Academy Award winner for Best Picture is Amadeus. It's an amazing character study in envy. Antonio Soleri was an 18th century composer who had a tangled relationship with his younger uh, contemporary Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. The movie opens with Salieri, who's in an insane asylum. He's driven mad by envy, a lifetime of envy over Mozart's gifts, long after Mozart has already passed away. He has unsuccessfully attempted suicide, and now he's being visited by a priest who's coming to hear his final confessions. In the scene from early in the film, Salieri tells the priest about his one desire as a young boy. Let's watch. Salieri believed for a while that God had indeed answered his prayer. He went to Vienna to study music, eventually became the court composer for Emperor Joseph II. And all was going great until he showed up. In this scene, the emperor has invited Mozart to come to Vienna. Salieri 
has composed a welcome march for Mozart. The emperor, who is learning to play the piano, asked if he could play this for Mozart upon his arrival. Now, he is a horrible pianist. But when the emperor asks, you let him do what he wants. So they sat down to play, and Salieri was just beaming, even though he was playing horribly, beaming at the fact that he had written this for the great composer Mozart and that the emperor himself was playing it. Well, Mozart comes into the room as the emperor is struggling to get through the piece. Then they have a conversation about uh, uh, one of Mozart's upcoming projects, and before he leaves, uh, the emperor offers Mozart the sheet music that Salieri had composed as a gift uh, for him. And this takes place. Let's watch. Salieri became torn, right? Torn between the wonder of the aching beauty of Mozart and his giftedness. Just looking at how he took what he, the simple tune he wrote and then just riffed on it, it was so incredible. And then his loathing for Mozart, whose gifts far outshowed his own. I mean, what Salieri thought was first a gift from God, his musical ability, he had to compare it with Mozart, and so he realized it was nothing. You see what envy does? It, it always puts you up against someone else. The green-eyed monster had consumed Salieri's life. Later on in the film, at another occasion of Mozart's performance, Salieri says something that at first sounds incredibly beautiful, but then you realize how sad it is at well. He says this after hearing one of the concerts. I heard the music uh, of true forgiveness filling the theater, conferring on all who sat there perfect absolution. God was singing through this little man to all the world, unstoppable. And here's the sad part. Making my defeat more bitter with every passing bar. He couldn't enjoy the incredible beauty because he was comparing it to himself the whole time. How sad. The Bible is full of stories like this. Stories where envy grabs hold of someone. Adam and Eve wanting to eat the fruit in the garden because the serpent said, no, 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 you'll be like God if you do this. God doesn't want you to have that because he doesn't want you to be like him. Cain and Abel where big brother kills younger brother because God only accepted the younger one's offering. Jacob and Esau, this time the younger brother resorts to trickery and deception because his older brother has a blessing and a birthright that he wants for himself. King King Saul and David, where Saul as the king, the person in control, becomes so jealous and envious over David's fame as he grows as as a soldier that it, it drives him crazy. In fact, before Saul became a king, God was considered to be the king of Israel, And and God's own people envied other nations who had a, quote, real king that they demanded a king like the other nations. Basically, they're rejecting God's authority in their life. You see, the the problem with envy is that it naturally leads to exile and isolation. It, it, It separates us from who it is that we were created to be and the life that God gave us to enjoy. Envy leads to exile because it wants life on its own terms Not whatever God has provided for us. So Adam and Eve were forced to leave Eden. Cain was exiled to a life of wandering. Esau uh, uh, was exiled to his uncle's country. Saul was removed as king. And Israel, from almost the moment it desired to be someone else, was ripped into. And over time, each half of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, what used to be the united Israel, uh, was conquered by foreign forces while people were taken out of their homelands in chains 
into exile. The envy of the Israelites, Jeff Cook writes, led them to reject their identity. And when when they no longer knew who they were, the nation was split, was conquered, and the people were led off to foreign lands. This is a good time to go back to the movie Amadeus. The next scene comes about an hour into the film. Salieri has had enough of Mozart's nonsense. Uh, Not his talent, of course. No, but the carefree, unrefined, irreverent attitude of life that Mozart seems to be living. And so Salieri takes his case once again before the Almighty God and starts by saying, we are now enemies. From this point on, Salieri does whatever he can to undercut Mozart all throughout the rest of the film. You see, envy delights in spoiling what others have. If I can't be happy, says envy, then I don't want you to be happy either. Michael Mangus, in his book, Signature Sins, comments, sadly, that's why envy thrives in divorce courts. Now, I'm going to say something that may be difficult for some of us to hear. I know it was hard for me to read when I first came across it in my study. Envy ultimately isn't about what others have or what we don't have. I I think Salieri was on to something in this last clip. You see, the roots of envy lie in one's relationship with God. And and so to be envious is actually to take issue with God and what God has planned for our own life. Deep down, when we envy, we believe that it's actually God who has treated us badly because God hasn't given us what we think we deserve. Our Bible story today from Matthew 20 is an example of this, right? The parable of the workers in the vineyard. A landowner needs workers at harvest time, so he goes down to the local labor ready and hires a group of guys first thing in the morning, and they agree to work for a usual day's wage, a fair price for a hard day's work, one denarius. Well, with more work to be done, the boss goes back down to the unemployment line four more times throughout the day, and the last being just an hour before quitting time. And each of these workers, he makes no promises other than to say, I will pay you what's fair. And so when it comes time to collect their paychecks, the boss starts giving out uh, to the latecomers first an envelope that has exactly one denarius, a full day's wage. Now, had he started with the guys that worked all day, they would have taken the money and gone home, no problem. But no, he starts with the last first. And they open up their paychecks, and they're so excited, they start telling how much everybody they got. And so the people that worked longer start doing the math in their head and figuring, wow, if you get a full day's wage for one hour... We're going to be rich by the time we get paid. They also receive in their envelopes a single day's wage. Verse 11. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, The last worked for only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat? And our first compulsion is to want to agree with them, right? Because (laughs) it just doesn't seem fair, does it? And then the landowner reminds them and reminds us that they received exactly what they agreed to work for at the start of the day, a single day's wage, a fair price, one denarius. But they didn't understand what many of us fail to understand when envy grabs a hold of our hearts, and that is their reward wasn't in the envelope they got at the end of the day. The reward was the fact that they had a job in the first place. Their reward was the trust that the landowner had given them to be hired to work in his vineyard, an invitation to be part of something greater than themselves. Jesus was teaching people that we all are undeserving 
of the bounty and grace that God gives us. But God gives it anyway. See, the problem with envy is it often prevents so many of us from enjoying that amazing grace that God has given us because we're comparing ourselves with others. Jeff Cook notes that envy likes to point out the good things of others, but it hides the difficulties that those others might be facing. Envy insists that everyone but me is happy and that no one else hurts or struggles or or has needs the same way that I do. And then it tells us that because of that, our lives really aren't that valuable. Envy treats our God-given gifts like trash. All because it, it doesn't contain more money, more toys, more vacations, more acclaim, more sleep, more success, more health, more weight loss, more privileges. You fill in the blanks for whatever it is the tapes in your head say because we all have those tapes, don't we? I mentioned last week that we'll be looking at the Beatitudes each week during this series as a antidote to the seven deadly sins. This week's Beatitude might actually appear to be a, a bit disconnected from the topic of envy. Matthew 5, verse 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, how does mourning connect with envy? Well, when people mourn, there's usually some kind of suffering that's behind it, right? Whether it's physical suffering, emotional suffering, relational suffering. Jesus wasn't encouraging us to go find suffering in our lives so that we can start mourning and be blessed. No, but as Christians, we're encouraged to recognize that suffering and mourning can actually be extraordinary teachers. You hear that? Suffering can actually be an amazing teaching moment in our lives. I'm sure many of us can echo the sentiments of Kenneth Bailey in his book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, when he says... We know little about the great depths of the human spirit until we have endured suffering because pain rearranges our priorities. Now, as Christians, we believe that God can take anything that happens in our life and turn it into something good, right? The Apostle Paul says that. I don't believe that God causes everything to happen so that everything that happens in your life is good. No. Things happen because of choices we make or Choices that other people make that we have no control over. And sometimes it is not connected at all to our own lives. Nevertheless, God can take anything and turn it into something good. Unless, of course, we allow envy to poison our hearts and whisper into our ears that God really doesn't care about us. Otherwise, things would have turned out differently. And so longing for something else, envy seeks to direct us away from the one life that God has given us to live. And that's a shame. But it doesn't have to be that way. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. When we share the depth of our pain with others, instead of envying envying people that are in different situations, when we listen to the stories of those who have been through difficult experience like us, when we see the scars that other people wear, we're reminded we're not alone, that, that healing is possible For scars are wounds that have been filled in by living flesh. Comfort can't come in exile. Exile isolates us from others. It seeks to bury our pain. Comfort only comes when we begin to mourn, to draw close to others who will walk with us through whatever tragedy or difficulty we may be experiencing and remind us 
(laughs) that as Christians we believe God can raise the dead. That there are dead things that we thought were finished and God can breathe life into them again. Whether our pain is due to tragedy or happenstance or, or, or just our own failures, we have to share our hurts with others. We must be willing to mourn, even if it's mourning the evil and sin in our own lives and the times that we've messed up. Sin which keeps us separated from God and one another. The Apostle Paul is a great example. He endured uh, more than his share of suffering and hardship. And there's a wonderful passage in the scripture that lists all the struggles and the problems that he faced trying to do God's work. But at the very end of his letter to the church in Philippi, he says this. I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need, and therefore I can do all things through him, through Christ, who strengthens me. Friends, both envy and mourning are responses to the places we lack. Those who envy and those who mourn are in positions of want. And they both desire a life that is different, with different details than what we're experiencing. But only one group finds happiness and healing. Jesus reminds us that more than anything else, those who mourn expose their pain. They confess it. They share it with others. They provide space for healing from God and from one another. So don't let envy take root. Don't allow the seeds of discontent to pull us away from the lives that we've been given by God. And for Christians, we should remember that we have been invited. We have been given a chance to be in the vineyard with the master. It doesn't matter how long or short we've been in that relationship. We're in the master's vineyard. We are loved and forgiven. We have blessings that are showered upon us. We are precious in God's sight. That should carry far more weight than any external reward in this life that we might think we so desperately need. Thanks be to God for this amazing grace. And may we have the courage to actually be honest and mourn those broken places in our lives. To share them with others. doesn't have to be with everybody. But with a few people. Offering them up to the one who makes all things new. And strengthens us like nobody can. And all God's people said, Amen. I invite you to rise.